Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. So we are going to conclude today our series from Genesis 1 to 3. And I do it with some measure of regret because um, I absolutely love this section of Scripture. And I think we could probably spend months unpacking it together. But alas, the time has come. And uh, looking over the horizon, we're going to uh, engage in a new series about our life together as a family, as a community, and our future starting uh, in early October. Uh, I want to offer my thanks to the many volunteers uh, that helped us with the, uh, the picnic uh, and also the many volunteers that helped us with uh, the breakfast last week. Uh, Barb and Gail and a, and a crew uh, was involved in the, uh, the picnic, making that an outstanding success. Those uh, box lunches that Gail did um, were amazing. Thank you. And then last week, as you heard all the people that visited us during the car show, um, we, uh, we love this community and we're so pleased and proud to be a part of it and to serve in different ways. Well, today I, I want to invite you to uh, open your Bibles and to, uh, to go to Genesis chapter 3. I will have a cheat sheet up here uh, on the screen for you um, so that you can follow along, but I would love to have you um, uh, kind of process this with me today. This is a little more theological than usual. Um, I hope that doesn't mean a little drier, uh, but just the nature of what we're going to talk about today is just kind of that way. And so uh, fasten your seatbelts and, uh, and, and bear with me if you would. I want to welcome all of you to North Sound Church, especially Jim and Denise, Carolyn's sister and brother-in-law. Nice to have you folks visiting from, uh, from California. And any other guests that uh, may be here today that I've missed, um, thank you for joining us. So we're going to reflect on the passage that Jack read for us this morning. And we're going to look at the tragedy of the fall, which we find in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at the consequences of the fall, and we're going to see the impact that it had not only on human beings, but also on creation. And since uh, that time, the way that it's affected all of us, the good news, because the topic today is good news, is how this will one day change dramatically for the better. So we left our story with the sin of Adam and Eve, in uh, disobeying God in the garden, we all know pretty well the fruit uh, of, the, of the garden. I have always been amazed that the symbol of Apple computer is an apple with a bite taken out of it. Um, I, I have no idea whether there was any significance, but if, if one of you happens to know um, that that is significant, um, let, let me know. Um, when it doesn't, when, when the Apple product doesn't work, which is rare, but when it doesn't work, I can understand the bite uh, out, of the, uh, out of the Apple at that point in time. So we left the story with Adam and Eve disobeying God, and the result was that they were naked before God and others. Verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So they had guilt at this point and shame in the knowledge that what they had done 
had created a loss of intimacy that they had with God and with others. There's this symbolic picture now of having been naked and transparent with nothing to hide. Now they have something to hide from each other and to hide from God. And then God comes to visit, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among those uh, among the garden, those in the garden. So up until this time, they enjoyed complete trust with God. They had this trusting relationship. They were brought into the community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and now they were a part of this community with God, and they were naked, but it didn't matter because they were completely transparent in the relationship that they had with God. They lived in this intimate community with God and each other. And now, instead of being drawn into the presence of God, now they hid themselves from God. And I think that this, this sort of a first realization here is something for us to consider. And that is, in our lives, perhaps even in this moment, do we find ourselves wanting to move into the presence of God? Or do we find ourselves, for one reason or another, wanting to hide from God? The answer to that question is a very telling one. Verse 8, But the Lord God called the man who was hiding and said to him, Where are you? Now, obviously, an all-knowing God knew where Adam was. But he did not reject them. The interesting thing here is that he's all-knowing, he knows that they've hidden, and he knows that they've sinned, but he doesn't reject them. I, I just think this is such an amazing thing about God is that when the relationship with human beings was ruptured, he didn't simply eliminate Adam and Eve and say, I'm going to start over again. Maybe I'll have better luck with the next pair. But when they disobeyed and they hid from him, he went after them. And, and it reminds me of Luke chapter 15 where we have this wonderful story of a woman who seeks after a lost coin until she finds it, a shepherd who goes after a lost sheep until he finds the lost sheep, and a father that goes after, runs towards his prodigal son, the son that had disobeyed him, dissipated his life, but instead of rejection, he runs towards him. And in each case, it's a picture of God running towards us in spite of our sin. God is creator, but he's also the redeemer who wants to make good come from bad. So now we're introduced to the strategies human beings use to deal with their sin. Verse 10, and he said, I heard the sound of you, this is Adam speaking, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. It's interesting here, first of all, Adam uses the strategy of misdirection. He uses the strategy of misdirection. He doesn't answer God's question because up to this point, he and God have enjoyed a complete trusting relationship. And Adam is now caught in sin, 
And instead of simply admitting it and saying, mea culpa, mea culpa, what he says is, um, uh, what he tries to do is misdirect the conversation with God and begin to talk about sort of a theological perspective on what has happened here. It's just like the woman at the well in John chapter 8 where Jesus knows all about her past and she know, he knows about her present circumstances which are not ideal and when he talks to her and has some knowledge of her situation, she attempts also this misdirection. Instead of talking about her sin and her life and her situation, she wants to talk about the fact that the Jews worship in Jerusalem and the Samaritans worship there at the Mount in Samaria. Jesus is one who understands this misdirection I'm reminded of the little boy who got caught with his hand in the cookie jar and his mom in another room heard the rattling of the lid and asked Johnny if he was in the cookie jar and taking a cookie and Johnny, although busted, says, uh, no, mom, I'm just making sure they're all there. <laughs> Verse 11 he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Again, nakedness before God symbolizes a relationship of trust, innocence, holiness, and obedience. And now that's contrasted in this moment with the loss of all of these, the loss of innocence, of trust, the loss of holiness, as well as the guilt and the fear and the shame that have come as a result of this disobedience. Clothes meant they could no longer reveal themselves. They no longer had that innocent, trusting relationship with God. They now had to uh, affect the intimacy that they once knew by covering themselves. Hiddenness was the new way of life. It was even a loss of relationship with the animals, and it's not going to be restored until one day when the lion will once again lay down with the lamb. The second way that human beings deal with sin after misdirection is developing a relationship to sin that sees one as a victim, that sees one as a victim. Verse 12, the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree and I ate. The woman you gave me. Isn't it interesting that in one fell swoop, Adam attempts to blame not only Eve, but he blames God. The woman is responsible, but remember God, you gave her to me. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She didn't do much better when she confronted, she didn't say mea culpa. She said, it's the serpent. The story is told of Adam taking his two boys on a walk after they were thrown out of the garden. And they stood on a hill overlooking the Garden of Eden. And Adam pointed it out and said to his two boys, boys, that's where your mom ate us out of house and home. <laughs> 
One of the great challenges we have in making change in our lives is taking responsibility for our own actions, not being a victim, but taking responsibility. As long as we blame others, we will maintain the same trajectory, the same wrong, evil trajectory in our lives because if we look hard and long enough, we can usually find someone to blame, but the result of blaming others is to be trapped in our own sin. Stan Grenz reminds us of the results of sin. First of all, there's alienation. We're alienated from community because sin destroys relationships. It destroys community. And we're alienated from God and others and even the natural world. Have you ever been persona non grata? Um, you go to a memorial service or, a, um, or maybe a, a wedding uh, or an occasion um, with a group where there has been some kind of a breakdown, and you go in there and you feel the hostility, you, you feel the tension um, from the fact that something has happened, something has gone wrong in the context of relationship Friends, it's so important for us to recognize that sin is the great destroyer of community and God's intention. There's also condemnation as a result of sin. It's uh, the sentence of judgment that hangs over us. We realize that we've done something wrong. We're guilty of disobedience. Remember a young man sharing with me about being out of high school 10 or 15 years and uh, coming across some of the students that he was in school with and the pangs of guilt that he still felt over the meanness, the mean way in which he had treated those students so many years before. Enslavement is another consequence of sin. Sin is an alien force that holds us in its grasp. It kind of reminds me of the old uh, black and white movies where uh, in the science fiction movies they would have a, a, a beam that would come down, you remember, from a, from a spaceship, and it was a beam which immobilized the people that were underneath that, that beam and held them so that they couldn't do anything. And it kind of in uh, the, the slavery that we have to sin reminds me of that enslavement. In that in that when we have that sin that easily besets us, we start out by thinking we're in control. We, we dabble. But what ends, up, what ends up happening is that there's a, there's a flip at some point where instead of us being in control and just dabbling, it now has control and enslaves us into that particular behavior. Barb and Scotty and I love watching British mysteries and uh, one of funny moment in one of those British mysteries was when a detective inspector and several other police officers were discussing the problem of addiction. And as they were discussing the problem of addiction, he reached into his jacket pocket and pulled out a, uh, a flask of whiskey and took a drink at the same time he said, well, there's no addiction problem in my family. <laughs> we find ourselves... We find ourselves enslaved. We, we start believing this is something that is going to be good, and it ends up upside down. The final thing he mentions is depravity. 
we do not have the ability in ourselves to remedy our own situation. The original sin of Adam is passed on to us, and we then have a propensity to sin, to do wrong, and we need to come to a place of moral responsibility. And when we come to a place of moral responsibility, that propensity to sin causes us actually to do so, and we follow in the steps of Adam and Eve. So we're given some cosmic results of sin in the next few verses. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, uh, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for, dust, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So I want to conclude this series from Genesis as well as this morning's topic with the understanding that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to live out good news, and the end of this story is remarkably good news. We have read here, I've read here, the consequences of the fall, and they are, they are pretty concerning to us, but this isn't something that we are to accept, just these consequences by saying, well, that's what God intended, so now we're going to live through that. We are actually called as followers of Jesus Christ who have been redeemed by him, who are now no longer citizens of this world, but we're citizens of the kingdom of God. We have been called to actively work against these signs of the fall. So we don't accept, we push back, and we want to live in such a way that we work for the better. So we seek to, to remedy pain in childbirth. We want good agricultural practices to make food more plentiful and easier to harvest. But the fact remains that in spite of all of these things that, that we may be doing and humanity may be doing to work for the good, we are all tainted in every area of life. But thank God the fall is not the end. Even out of the terrible consequences of the fall, we see God's grace at work. Let's continue on with the passage. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of the life and eat uh, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the, the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In this passage, we see that God extended grace to this first couple. 
In spite of her sin, Eve became the mother of humanity. And the interesting thing about going out of the garden would be that if in the midst of their sin, Adam and Eve stayed in the garden, ate of the tree of life, had immortality, and lived forever in a state of sin, God's purposes would not be accomplished in creation and redemption. Sin and rebellion in time do not negate the potential of confession and repentance in leading to life. So friends, as followers of Jesus Christ, we believe that God sent him on a rescue mission to become the means by which our sins are forgiven. And I want to take just a moment to help us understand how the cross and the resurrection reverse the effects of the fall. First, consider Paul's words in Genesis 3, uh, excuse me, Galatians 3.27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Notice the association of baptism and clothing. Kind of go all the way back to the beginning, right? The nakedness, God clothing them, and now Paul talks about those who were baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. The early church had the baptismal candidates take off their garment in order to be baptized, and then they gave them a white garment to put on after baptism. In Romans, Paul talks about how in baptism we essentially descend with Christ into the realm of death. Do you not know, he writes, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then in Corinthians, Paul talks about putting on immortality, putting on immortality. I love the way Gary Anderson ties this together. He says, from these letters, three sets of symbols emerge. First, baptism is marked by clothing. Second, baptism is a participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And third, resurrection is a putting on of immortality. All we need to do is to add the theme of the stripping of Adam, and the picture is complete. At baptism, the Christian is stripped of the garments inherited by Adam and vested with the token of those garments he or she will enjoy at the resurrection. We can see how this was acted out in the early church. We have a record from the 5th century, that is the 400s, from Syrian theologian Theodore of Mapuestia, who describes the instructions to those who are about to be baptized. He says, You stand, therefore, with outstretched arms in the posture of one who prays and look downwards and remain in that state in order to move the judge to mercy. And you take off your outer garment and stand barefoot in order to show in yourself the state of cruel servitude in which you serve the devil for a long time. You stand also on garments of sackcloth so that from the fact that your feet are pricked and stung by the roughness of the cloth, you may remember your old sins and show penitence and repentance for the sins of your fathers. So by stripping the postulant experienced shame, and then the process of redemption began by reenacting the sin of Adam. But there was another piece, according to Theodore, at the close of Lent, at Easter, there's another stripping. Now the baptismal candidate approaches the baptismal font 
in a different state. As when Adam was formerly naked, he says, and was in nothing ashamed of himself, but having broken the commandment and become mortal, he found himself in need of an outer covering. So also you, who are ready to draw nigh unto the gift of holy baptism, so that through it you may be born fresh and become symbolically immortal, rightly remove your covering. Notice how the sequence in baptism is the reversal of Adam's sin and covering. Interestingly, in Africa, they would um, also stand at the baptismal time on the skin of an animal to fulfill what was said earlier in Genesis chapter 3 about trampling on the snake. They showed thereby standing on the skin of the animal the trampling of the devil and the defeat of Satan. So friends, through baptism into Christ, we now experience the tree of life and we live forever. We put on immortality. Alienation has now become union with Christ and his community. Condemnation has been put away because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no more enslavement to sin. The chains have been broken. In Christ, there is no depravity. He has done what we could not do. He is the one that became the means by which our sins are forgiven. I close with a, a wonderful and perhaps apocryphal story of New York City Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. He was the mayor of New York City in the days of the Great Depression and coming out in World War II, and he was adored by many New Yorkers. He was called Little Flower because he was five foot four inches tall, and he typically wore a flower in, on his lapel. He was a colorful character. He used to ride the New York City fire trucks. He uh, would go with police on raids to speakeasies, which during uh, Prohibition were, were um, drinking establishments um, that were hidden from public view. And uh, he would take entire orphanages to baseball games. And whenever the New, York the New York newspapers were on strike, he would read the comics to the kids over the radio. A story is told about one bitterly cold night in January of 1935. The mayor turned up at a night court in the poorest ward of New York City, and he gave the judge the night off so that he could serve in the, uh, the, the, uh, under the authority of his role as mayor of the city. So he took over the bench, and within a few moments, a, a tattered old woman was brought before him, charged with stealing a loaf of bread. LaGuardia listened to her as she talked about how her daughter's husband had left her and how the daughter was ill and her two grandchildren were starving. But in spite of the story, the shopkeeper would not release her from the charges. The man told the mayor, he said, it's a bad neighborhood, your honor. She's got to be punished to teach other people around here a lesson. LaGuardia sighed. He turned to the woman and said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions, and in this case, it's $10 or 10 days in jail. But even as he pronounced sentence, the mayor 
took his famous sombrero, his hat, took out $10 from his own wallet and put it into the hat and addressed the woman and said, here's the $10 which I now remit. Furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in the courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. Friends, I thank God that we have a Savior who's paid the penalty of sin for us. He became the means by which our sins are forgiven. And we are now free to serve him and his kingdom forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. Once again, a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us to realize that you have dealt with the consequences of sin as we have put our faith and trust in you. But Lord, now we are called not just to wait for heaven and a glorious reunion with you and those who have gone before, but we are called each day to work for good, to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.